Here's a news flash. Surprise, surprise. Well, look at you. The whole world is watching for my next move. Oh my God. Times have changed. There are no rules. You're gonna love it. Hi, and welcome to Skip Intro, the new podcast from Binge, all about the world's best television. Each week, we're here to discuss the biggest new shows on Binge, along with our dinner party recommendations, those shows that we suggest our friends and family check out. My name is John Boehm, here with Ali Herbert Burns, and together we look after all the great TV and movies that you see on Binge, how they're presented to you, what gets marketed, what gets bought. We're talking about two brand new things today, Ali. What are they? We're talking about Sanditon, which itself isn't brand new, but there is a brand new season that lands on Binge this week. We're also talking about the documentary series Undercurrent, which is a two-part documentary that looks at the murder of a Swedish journalist, Kim Wall, in a crime you may remember from a few years ago. She went down in a man-made mini submarine to interview the guy who built it and unfortunately never came back. So two quite different shows. Awesome. Well, let's jump into... Jane Austen's Sanditon. Sanditon is fast becoming the most desirable destination on the South Coast. I am besieged by fortune hunters. How are we to attract rich husbands unless we look the part? Came here to avoid all that. Based on Jane Austen's final unfinished novel, Sanditon follows Charlotte Haywood as she swaps her quiet rural home for the new and growing seaside town of Sanditon. Cancelled after its first season, an international fan campaign saw the series picked up for a second and third season, with season two rolling out weekly, now on binge. Ali, this comes from a long line of period dramas. It's adapted by Andrew Davies, who, if people aren't familiar with, has basically adapted every big British period drama in history, including, um, you know, Colin Firth's Pride and Prejudice and Bleak House and Sense and Sensibility and million other things. Before we jump into what it's about, Ali, did you sign the petition to get season two and three made? <laughs> I didn't. I'm, I'm really not, you know, I need to get on board a bit more with my keyboard warrior tips, shouldn't I? Because um, amongst Zack Snyder and this and, yeah, so many other things, if people are unhappy, just, you know, assault the studio. But I'm going to go out quite strong at the beginning and say that I think Sanditon's about to take off and I think it's in the context of how the world of period drama has changed since the first season came out. And the fact that Bridgerton has brought a lot more people to this this genre. And I think Sanditon, with its Mr. Darcy and Pride and Prejudice-esque kind of smouldering tension between um, lead characters, I think it's about to find a big audience. Yeah, it's obviously interesting when a show gets cancelled and then sort of re-brought back to life. But this show obviously started life as a traditional linear television show in the UK um, and for, for whatever reason wasn't originally renewed for a second season. It was originally on ITV as well, wasn't it, going out yeah. weekly? Yeah. yeah, apparently did quite well in the US where it airs on just sort of traditional television there as well. But it just seems like around the world people discovered this show and uh, started hashtagging and obviously the VOD numbers went went through the roof as people discovered it. It seemed to also have a bit of a moment around the same time as Bridgerton, as, as you mentioned. And yeah, now we've got two more seasons to look forward to. I'm not the world's biggest period drama watcher, Ali. Um, might surprise you. What? You worked at the BBC <laughs> in another life, John. You've got to love period drama. Yeah, I was, I was busy <laughs> watching like Louis Theroux and other things. <laughs> but what I find interesting about this is it does hit a lot of those like period drama beats. You know, there's a love triangle. There's like the old world meeting the new world and like outrage older people who've never seen a pineapple and never heard a telegram. But then it's also like, I feel like this has a bit more like sexiness 
than a traditional sort of British period drama. There's a bit more scandal, at least in the, the first few episodes. And really interestingly, this also features Jane Austen's only Black character that she ever wrote. So this isn't some modern take on her story. This was Jane Austen did only ever write one Black character um, and it did happen to be in Sanderson and she obviously does play a really big part in this first season. And that's what I kept thinking when I was watching this because I'd seen a few episodes of it last year, I think, after Bridgerton came out because we saw how it started to spike season one on, on Binge. And in Australia, it's since gone, I think, to the ABC. Season two will premiere with us this week. But going back and refreshing myself, I was like, there was a lot there that Bridgerton lent into. I really think with that now being so popular and people potentially finding this off the back of it, I agree with you. You had the sauciness and the slow build of passion between two very beautiful people. And then, yeah, you had some really interesting, almost like feminist (laughs) overtones on the way, and, and the way Jane Austen used to do this, she did it with, you know, Pride and Prejudice, but just the kind of commentary around the ownership of women and there's a bit of, you know, discussion about slavery and, yeah, there's, there's some themes in this that, yeah, are a little bit more punchy than kind of the, your traditional Pride and Prejudice might have been when it was made back in the 90s. So I can't wait to see which direction season two goes in. I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a big first episode of season two for those that have watched the first season. And I think the first season, it also just built, it got sexier and the chemistry really got better as the season went on. So I think people were kind of left really, really wanting to know where this goes. So, And it, and it has had to kind of evolve into its own thing because, yeah, as we mentioned, this is based on a Jane Austen novel, but the 11 chapters she wrote before she died. So this has no definitive ending. And, you know, with season two and three coming, I guess it can kind of go in any direction. Well, that's a good point because they renewed it for two seasons, didn't they? So this, season two is about to land and then there's a season three coming, which is great. It's BritBox in the UK stepped into the ITV kind of lead commissioner role, the sale to Australia and Scandinavia and the PBS in America kind of helped put the jigsaw puzzle of commissioning together so that this could fight on this season. So, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see are there new love interests or where did all the characters end up? To step away from the storyline for a second, the fan love of this show is kind of not something I've encountered previously. Like we had people talking about the poster art that we were using for season one. Like we've had like, yeah, it's just the level of fandom is kind of a little intense. And, you know, that's why we've got two more seasons out of it. But I did want to say the first time I ever heard about this show was a friend texted me a photo of a flyer that she saw hanging outside of Coles. And it was just this like a self-published flyer that someone, <laughs> had, someone had like designed and printed and stuck to like a community board outside a supermarket. And it just said, watch Sanderson on binge. That's some like deep guerrilla marketing that fans are just out there like printing flyers and handing them out to people. I know, and people, it wasn't us. We weren't that clever. (laughs) This was literally like, this is an original for coming from the people. Yeah, and it was really early on in Binge's days. I remember it, you you know, it was quite early on in our kind of launch in our period. So I think this is going to be really interesting. It has built an audience since it first came out as well. So I think there'll be lots more people ready for this and I can't wait to see where it goes. At the end of the first season, um, as you you touched on, Sanditon is... um, it's almost like a Brighton. It's a Victorian, you know, village. It's almost like a property developer has come in and wants to build Sanditon into like the next Victorian, you know, Regency era seaside holiday town where the, you know, the hoity-toity of London will come to spend their time and get, get, their, their, get their sea breeze. Get their sea breeze. And there's this quite hilarious episode where they are going for a swim in the ocean for the first time and they literally get put in these bathing 
huts. I don't know if this happened, probably historically accurate, but they get put in these kind of huts that are almost on caravan wheels and they get in in their full, the ladies in their full kind of Victorian garb. Then they strip off to kind of petticoats and put weird little bonnet things on. And then the caravan gets wheeled out into the ocean. So it's almost floating. And then they open the door of this bathing hut. And by that point, they're in the water and they swim. Because, of course, you can't walk along the beach in your petticoat or, or your swimming costume and be seen. So it was really interesting. And you, have, you see them having their kind of first response or reaction to what it feels like to swim in the ocean. But at the end of the, and, and so it's kind of the whole first season is building to this fact of is this very enthusiastic property developer who's paid by Chris Marshall, which lots of you, some of you might remember from Death in Paradise. He kind of plays this really enthusiastic guy who's desperately, you know, pulling on all strings possible to make sure he can build this town. And there's a lot kind of going against them and the favours of the posh and whether they want to come down. And so season one kind of finishes on the conclusion of kind of the first wave of them building this town. And of course, the multiple love stories that are happening between people and Marriage for love versus marriage for wealth versus marriage for position and lots of jostling for, you know, favour in, in courts and things like that. So it's got all the normal things that draw people to period dramas and, yeah, just some really great chemistry between the two lead characters. The lead character, Charlotte Haywood, as you mentioned, she's from a farm, um, a small town, and she goes to kind of stay with friends at Sanditon for the period. She's played by a young actress, Rose Williams, and her love interest, who plays Sydney Parker, who's one of the brothers of the property developer, he's played by Theo James, which some of you might know from the Divergent film series, but really great chemistry that builds between those two as the season goes on. Although not initially, mainly just him yelling at her. I know, but that, that, that's where I just felt like it was so Mr. Darcy. Like it just, you could feel the, the Jane Austen element in it, you know, that, you know, cross rise and her being quite an opinionated young lady, which is not always wanted, who's got lots of opinions that he doesn't really care to hear. And he's kind of moody and broody, a little bit like the Duke was in Bridgerton, I felt like, you know, he kind of almost seems like he's unattainable, decided he's not of the marrying kind and where it gets to as the season goes on is why does he feel like that? What's his kind of heartbreak or his backstory? And will her inquisitiveness and her strong sense of character win him over? So lots of pride and prejudice in this for me. Well, I do love when a fan favourite is able to survive. I think that this is one of the many joys of streaming and there being so many platforms these days that if something maybe starts out life on the wrong channel or the wrong place, but there's enough of an audience for it, it's able to continue. So thank you, streaming. Well, John, Binge is making a bit of a name for itself, campaigning for the fans, you know, fan first and getting things here. We, we fought really hard to make sure that Zack Snyder's Justice League could be released in Australia because whilst, you know, you kind of think these things should go coming through from HBO or Warner Brothers, there's other stakeholders involved in Hollywood and things don't always happen as smoothly as you might hope. Um, so we fought to make sure that that was, you know, launched here at the same time and same with Friends reunions and things like that. So it makes sense that Sanditon finds its home in Australia on Binge. So Sanderson is dropping weekly um, with new episodes. No, really? Yeah, sorry, oh, sorry. Oh, man, I want to binge it. New episodes each Thursday on Binge and season three coming at some point. So plenty to look forward to. You remain stubbornly unwed, I see. I have a job as a governess. I have never possessed such power. No one chooses to be a spinster. I am dying to hear your first impressions of Sanderson, Colonel. I was struck by its natural beauty. You can't recapture what you had with Sydney. I believe you have a rival. Love isn't as simple as you seem to think. And now for something a little bit different. Undercurrent, the disappearance of Kim Wall. 
If you mention the submarine trial, as we call it here, everyone will know what it's about. Kim was naturally inclined for journalism. The stories she sought out were not mainstream. The first thought I had in my head was, what do you mean she was missing? She was just doing her job. Then she ran into a psychopath. This two-part true crime documentary series tells the shocking story of the murder of Swedish journalist Kim Wall. Dubbed the submarine case in Denmark and becoming a media sensation, the story of her disappearance and murder includes a homemade submarine, an eccentric and dangerous inventor, and a brutal and premeditated crime. Ali, this is a like this is another really tough watch, but also just so compelling. It's hard to stop watching because the details as they emerge are just sort of crazier and crazier. Bang on, John. I think what I found interesting about this is it's true crime, but you're not almost following the true crimeness of it. You're following the fact that it happened on a mini submarine that a kind of a quite an eccentric guy made and that it was a journalist doing her job. And so the crime part of it is obviously it gets covered in the second episode, especially is about the repercussions in the court case and stuff. But yeah, there was so much to get over in your mind initially, which is like, what was this mini submarine? Why did he make it? Why was she on it? And then the way he kind of comes back to shore, everyone thinks she's still on the boat. Like it was almost like it took a while to spill out the end of the first episode where you really get into what happened. Yeah, there's just this web of lies. So like very quickly, Kim Walls, this freelance journalist, she's travelled all over the world. She's been to war zones and North Korea and all these places. There is this Peter Madsen guy who's like sort of compared to like an Elon Musk of like Denmark. Like he builds rockets and submarines and he's an inventor and like a minor celebrity um, in Denmark. He's built like a series of homemade submarines just because he can, I guess. Because you do. Like yeah. what, why would you need a submarine? But anyway, yeah. And Kim Wall, who's a journalist who just follows a story, is invited to like go on this submarine because of course, like it's fascinating. Why have you built a submarine? There's a story there. She gets on the submarine and then never comes back. Peter Madsen sort of rescued from the wreck of the submarine. He claims to have dropped her off back on land that night. So then it becomes like, oh, she's missing. Where is she gone? And then his story keeps changing. And of course, it's then revealed that he did murder her on the submarine. Then it goes into this investigation. It's his continuing changing story of, oh, she hit her head. Oh, she had carbon monoxide. I let her off earlier that night. You just can't wrap your head around why. And then it just becomes clearer and clearer that it was premeditated from the very beginning. This is always his plan. And what's so chilling, obviously any crime is chilling, but what's so chilling is you speak to these other journalists who were covering the case and at one point they're asked you know, would you have gone the submarine? And they all say, yeah, of course. And even in my mind, I'm like, if it was my job to go interview this kind of quirky inventor with a submarine, it's not even mm. something that would cross your mind not to do. And it's just like, that's part of what is so chilling and so bizarre. And I think that's why it became this media sensation in Denmark. Isn't that interesting? I think you've tapped into something interesting there as well, because you've got the fact that she was a journalist. So a lot of her colleagues, the people that she studied with, they interview her professor at Columbia because she went to America and worked there. And she was a a freelance journalist for a lot of really big publications as well. So there's a lot of other journos that are interviewed in this and they're kind of bringing, yeah, that kind of investigative journalism bent to it. And and did that mean that the case got covered a lot more because of their intrigue on that as well, this fact that this woman was doing her job? One of her um, good friends and fellow journalists makes a statement that says that Kim would have found this deeply ironic that, you know, she was effectively doing her job in what would be regarded as one of the safest societies in the world. She was Swedish, but she was living in Denmark. She was about to move 
I think to Indonesia with her husband. No, to China. Yeah, they were in China. Yeah. And they'd had their farewell party. I mean, this is just so creepy. They'd had her farewell party with their friends that evening. She left it early to go on the submarine because this guy said he wanted to go out that evening or whatever. And so she leaves the friends, goes out on the submarine, texts her boyfriend. And I think it might have even been her last text. I'm still alive, like, lol, kind of thing, which is just chilling. And as you said, then he says he dropped her off. So you have this kind of 24-hour period where people are like, oh, she's alive but where is she and the fact that she'd survived places like North Korea she'd been to war war zones and here she is going on a what would seem like an innocuous boat ride in her hometown and her home harbor and she never comes back but to your point this guy was a creep it was premeditated and the stuff that I didn't know about this as I watched this is took over 80 or 90 days of a group of divers I think at one point they said over 100 divers that were going out in the harbour trying to look for her body because they did find part of her body, but it was kind of her torso. So they needed to find, sounds so awful describing, they needed to find her head because he'd said that she died by an accident. One of his stories was because the top of the hatch to the submarine like hit her in the head. So they're trying to find her head to see if that's the case. It's just so interesting what this documentary went into, but they had like tidal experts and understood where the water goes and where maybe a body would have gone following that. And they interviewed these divers and you could just imagine that it would have gripped Sweden and Denmark when this happened. But um, why did he do it? You know, that's what I found interesting about this. Why did this guy want to kill her? Is this the only murder? And he's now, you know, suspected of being involved in other murders. This guy was loopy and the serial killer potentially. Yeah, it does get into some of his potential motivations around like his childhood and mental health issues. And they even dig up old blog posts he wrote about stuff. It starts to piece together this really dark picture because you kind of start the documentary with, oh, he's this kooky inventor and he makes rockets and submarines. And then by the end of it, you're like, oh, it's just chilling that anyone ever went on a submarine with him once you know about him. Yeah, because what happens? He comes back to the harbour. The submarine goes out for ages and it doesn't come back when it's supposed to. I think her boyfriend initially says she's not come home and I can't get hold of her. And then he comes back in, he kind of gets it to the dock and then all of a sudden it sinks. And so the feeling is that he's kind of sunk it and all the kind of experts that are there, the Navy guys are like, oh, this is on purpose because a submarine can't sink that kind of way. And when he comes out of the water, all the journos that are there covering it, because you can imagine if someone famous had gone on, you know, a bit of a minor celebrity had gone out on their boat and there'd been a problem. The journos are calling out to him going, Peter, are you okay? And, you know, because they all know him and he's like waving and, oh, I'm disappointed my boat's on the bottom of the water or whatever not even talking about her. And then later on they go back and show some footage and you can actually see blood on his face and stuff. And, like, he just kind of was walking under the cover of his fame for that first period of time, wasn't he, where he wasn't kind of formally arrested for a while. Yeah, one of the sort of almost heroes of the documentary is one of the, like, naval investigators who does actually almost immediately clicks that something's wrong and calls the police. I think if it wasn't for those investigators being like, something is up here, he would have just gone home. The entire investigation sort of unravels with his constant lies. It takes time to find the body. It takes time to figure out what happened. Outside of all the detail, it's also just an excellently produced documentary. It's yeah, really it's well really filmed. Good. It's great interviews. They've got great access. Understandably, they don't you know, talk to the family or the, or the boyfriend, but they talk to the journalists who were covering it and the people that were investigating the crime. It's directed by Aaron Lee Carr, who's done a couple of documentaries that we have on Binge. One of them at the heart of Gold, which was about the US gymnastics scandal 
scandal with the um, sexual abuse of a bunch of female athletes. And she also directed I Love You Now Die, Mm. which is one of our most watched true crime series ever on Binge, which if you're not familiar with is about Michelle Carter and it's the so-called texting suicide case where this girlfriend basically ends up getting charged with involuntary manslaughter by like egging on her boyfriend to eventually kill himself. So yeah, the director has sort of excellent credentials in this space and it's a, a really compellingly told story over the two episodes. Like I had to watch it all in one go. John, I always find it interesting when we talk about kind of the new things that are hitting binge every week. We often have a documentary or something very newsy. Last week we were talking about the Evan Rachel Wood and Marilyn Manson documentary series, which has been hugely popular since launch on Binge just last week. And for me, so many of these things, I've read about them or have memory of them from when they were in the news cycle, but it's often many years afterwards that you're then seeing these kind of in-depth documentaries. And I think you learn so much, they bring so much more to these um, kind of headlines that have kind of floated around that we might know a little bit about, but you know, you really get a chance to go deep and they're just so well made. If you're going to sit down and spend two hours watching a film, I always love spending two hours watching a feature documentary like this because you really, you kind of get all the intrigue and the drama of some of these true, these true things that have happened, but really sophisticated way in behind the headlines. This is as well a made true crime documentary series as I've seen, so I can't recommend it highly enough. One person comes back, where's the other person? She was taken from the world by an act of violence. He killed her because he could. This court case was a circus. There was some critique of the way it was being covered by media. This victim-blaming notion, what did the woman do to bring this upon herself? What did she wear? Why did she put herself in that position? I wouldn't have thought twice to go on that submarine because it was the job that she was going to do. John, we're at the stage in the podcast where we talk about our dinner party recommendations. And whilst I love talking about the brand new shows that have hit the platform this week, it's also really good to understand what else should we discover on Binge. There's so many thousands of hours and and thousands of shows to choose from. And I always love getting your thoughts on some hidden gems or John recommendations. Have you got any for us this week? I do. And I have stretched myself to make it not not a factual or documentary recommendation this week. Well Um, done, John. Well thank you, thank you. you. I've yep. gone outside my gold comfort, star, my yep. comfort, comfort watching documentaries as I do. This is something that I watched as it originally aired about a decade ago, and I recently rewatched the whole thing. It holds up well, and it's incredibly entertaining. There's 24 half hours of it, and I've once again buried the lead. Uh, it's an HBO comedy called Bored to Death. There's something I've been meaning to tell you. Oh shit! I hate when people say that. What? I've been moonlighting as a private detective. I thought you'd be older. Well, I got into the business at a young age. I have been reading so many of these detective novels that I know what to do. This is all very insane and illegal, isn't it? It is illegal and insane. I like insane. Are you familiar? I am not familiar and I'm not bored, so do tell us more. Well, this definitely falls into those, like, underwatched, under-the-radar shows, but it stars Ted Danson, Zach Galifianakis and Jason Schwartzman, these sort of three man children living in Brooklyn. Jason Schwartzman is the star and plays this sort of like semi-successful author who's struggling to write his second book. So to get outside of his comfort zone, he lists himself as an amateur private detective on Craigslist. (laughs) 
So obviously this was 10 years ago, pre some social media. And the show kind of follows him and his friends as they kind of run around and try to solve these like very low stakes crimes and, and mysteries throughout Brooklyn. It was also at that time of like girls and those other shows. So it was a bit of a like, what's Brooklyn turning into? What, what are hipsters, these like kombucha and co-ops and what's happening to our city kind of backdrop. But it's also got this really, what I love most is kind of the tone. It's this like Dick Tracy, Wes Anderson-y, Barry-esque thing where, <laughs> you know, these bumbling men are running around New York trying to solve crimes. It's got an amazing guest list of stars who often play these, um, you know, those like stereotypical like femme fatales who are like, worried their husband's cheating on them or something and are enlisting the Jason Schwartzman character to sort of investigate them. But it's people like Kristen Wiig, Baby Neuwirth, Jenny Slate, Isla Fisher. It's also appearances of like John Hodgman and Patton Oswalt. So yeah, it's wow. Like it's got a, like a very cool comedy New York actory vibe to it. And yeah, it's just really enjoyable. It is quite low stakes. <laughs> um, you know, the crimes they're investigating aren't aren't massive. Um, And the other background stories are kind of just about like him trying to get his girlfriend back. And the Zach Galifianakis character is a comic book artist who's like written this comic book about a superhero whose like superpower is his penis. And he's like trying to get itself published. Like it's just this really quirky, it's like this quirky, but like a small show, but like in a good way. 24 eps, you said. So there's quite a lot of story there. Yeah, yeah. By small, I mean like the world they live in is these like few few streets of Brooklyn and, um, you know, they're not worried about what's happening outside the world, which is also very comforting that, you know, they're not tackling the world's problems. They're just running around New York and Brooklyn. But yeah, three seasons, 24 half hours, you know, you could probably smash through it on a long weekend. But yeah, it's got a great vibe and tone. It's just a fun, easy watch that definitely not not enough people have watched and yeah it's only 10 years old so besides some references to like craigslist and some very thick like laptops you know it it doesn't feel particularly old add it to the list i like that it's a comedy as well there's a lot going on in the world so um nice to just get lost in something in a simpler time of of 2010 (laughs) yeah you cannot mess with other people's lives like that you can barely lead your own life i can help people are you delusional Well, okay, I'm going to talk about something quite different, and it's Chernobyl. I'm pleased to report that the situation in Chernobyl is stable. In terms of radiation, I'm told it's the equivalent of a chest X-ray. No, Chernobyl is on fire. And every atom of uranium is like a bullet. So Chernobyl is a five-part series that was made in 2019. It's a co-production between HBO and Sky in the UK, and it is amongst one of the highest acclaimed, critically acclaimed series of all time. I can't think of many that have been more positively reviewed than this show. It is the story of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster that happened in April 1986. It's a drama, but it is also heavily researched and informed as much as possible by fact by the writer Craig Matson, um, an American writer who created this story. And I think the thing that's so interesting about it, and obviously it's timely, Chernobyl is in the Ukraine. This was happening under in 1986 when the Soviet Union was unified before the Berlin Wall and everything had come down. But until I watched Chernobyl, I knew about Chernobyl. I knew the word Chernobyl. I was alive when Chernobyl happened, but I didn't actually know why it happened. Like what happened for Chernobyl 
to happen. You know, when you think about these enormous moments in history, you know, the death of JFK, the death of Princess Diana, like she was in a car crash. It was speeding. She was in Paris. Why was she in Paris? You do know a lot about the moment. I did not know about what happened. And I think the first episode of Chernobyl is amazing. It starts with, so for those of you that were fans of this TV series, Mad Men, as I was, the actor Jared Harris, who who stars in that, he plays one of the lead characters in this series. A guy, I'm going to get these pronunciations wrong, but Valerie Legasov, who is basically sent in to work out what's going on and almost like the recovery process. Now he commits suicide two years to the day of the Chernobyl disaster. And it starts with a very infamous quote because he basically created an audio record of what he thought um, before he died. So there are real audio tapes in existence of him recording everything, like a recorded journal of his view of what happened. And he starts with something and it says, What is the cost of lies? It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies, then we no longer recognise the truth at all. And the reason I think it's timely to talk about Chernobyl right now is with what's happening in Ukraine. There was, I think maybe two weeks ago now, some activity around Chernobyl. It was unsure whether or not it had fallen into Russian hands, but there was some, I don't know if we ended up finding out the real truth, John, but it sounded like there was some disruptions and some fighting happening around the Chernobyl nuclear plant, which for those that have watched the film or know their history, it's effectively been concreted over and it's like in order to keep the radiation and everything in, it's, it's been deserted and it's kind of overseen and it's manned, but it's not, you know, a heavily populated area anymore. So the idea that that area is being potentially disrupted is kind of shocking and scary. But if you follow the story of what happened in Chernobyl, which was the hiding of the truth and letting not letting it out as to what was actually going on there and how many innocent people died because of the chain of command of lying and not being in trouble initially. The idea that you could have a nuclear plant again potentially being disrupted and maybe us not knowing the truth of what's happening because of the way the stories and the news is getting out of the Ukraine um, and the amount of people that live around this is just um, scary. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's a brilliant series. I think pre-watching Chernobyl, my understanding of Chernobyl was, oh, nuclear power plant failure something. You watch this series and it is like they were on the edge of like a earth-ending situation. The decisions they made to avert the crisis getting even worse. But yeah, some of the scenarios are, are just terrifying. And I think you've touched on this, but why the show is so successful is because it's about a lot more than just a nuclear power disaster. It's about lies and what happens when we don't listen to experts and um, what happens when, you know, fear and propaganda gets in the way. And mm. um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a brilliant series. It, it is, I think, one of the most acclaimed series in history from sort of critics and reviewers. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, we, you know, we did see us, we've seen a spike in viewing of it, of it recently as a result of what's, what's happening in the world. But, uh, you know, I'm glad people are watching it because I, I think it's a it's a really important series to see. The fact that we've got a war going on around a nuclear location now and, you know, threat of more nuclear activity, yeah, if there's ever a time to to understand what this series can teach us, um, it's it's worth a watch now. Asking the right question will get you the truth. There is no truth. What happened then? What happened after? All of it. All of it.
This week on Skip Intro, we were talking about Sanderton, which is now back for its second season. Uh, we discussed the true crime documentary series Undercurrent, The Disappearance of Kim Wall. I suggested you check out uh, Bored to Death, and Ali recommended the miniseries Chernobyl. All of these are streaming right now on Binge, which of course you can find on your favourite device. I'm John Bowen, joined every week by Ali Herbert-Burns. This podcast was produced by Dan Barrett with audio editing and mixing by Chris Yates. And we'll be back next week with more suggestions on what you should be checking out on Binge. <laughs>